From the Colorado Business Roundtable studios in Denver, you're listening to the voice of the Colorado Business Roundtable, focusing on issues around business, policy, and education with leaders across local, national, and international communities, making a difference and driving business success. This is Connect and Collaborate on KDMT, Denver's Money Talk, 1690 AM. your on-air producer and I'm super excited for our episode today uh, we are once again meeting with redefining rural and as a reminder the show is brought to you by uh, CSU global that is Colorado State University global campus all right good morning thank you Alex we are so excited to be here this morning we have two very special guests we're gonna talk about the topic of uh, marijuana tax revenues I think there's a lot of confusion around the state about how those tax revenues are generated how much money Money is actually generated, and does it or does it not cure all the ills facing our um, public schools? And I think, as we'll talk more about today, the money is incredibly helpful in certain aspects of our school life, but certainly doesn't answer all of the um, doesn't meet all of the needs that we're facing, all the challenges that we have. So before we dig into this sort of heady topic, we're going to ask our guests to introduce themselves. The first is Kathy Gebhardt. Welcome, Kathy. She's in studio with us. Thank you, Michelle. It's an honor to be here. I am here as the president of CASB and the chair of the Best Building Excellence Schools Today board. Thanks, Kathy. And then on the screen in studio, we have George Welch. And if it looks like we're not looking at you, it's because we can see George, although you can't. George is the superintendent in Canyon City School District. Hi, George. Tell them a little bit about your district and yourself. Sure. Uh, Canyon City is uh, kind of in that triangle between uh, Pueblo and uh, and the Colorado Springs. We're tucked uh, into the mountains heading up the Arkansas River towards Salida and um, high poverty district, um, not a lot of property wealth because uh, most of uh, the business around here is state. Uh, we have a prison industry that uh, um, um, is involved here and uh, um, we've uh, taken advantage of the Building Excellence Schools Today program as well. Great, great. And as we'll talk about, um, Canyon City also takes advantage of some of the other programs that are uh, funded by the best sales tax. So again, we apologize in advance. This is a necessarily heady and complex subject. We're going to do our best to keep it at a high altitude, um, but so a little bit of tax policy, and I've learned more than I ever thought that I would about tax policy and how things work uh, to better understand how the marijuana dollars are being spent. And I think the most important piece is that, um, you know, when the medical marijuana, was that Amendment 64? I'm looking at Kathy because she's my finance expert was passed years ago uh, some said that it was passed on the backs of public education because there was language in there that said that the first 40 million dollars of the excise tax would go to capital construction for public schools and X there are two types of taxes on marijuana an excise tax which is sort of at the wholesale level and the sales tax which is then um, paid by individuals as they when they purchase marijuana. They're two very different revenue streams. I believe the amount of the excise tax is at about 15%, and the sales tax, I am not sure I know, is also at 15%, it looks like, from the data that we have, and that money is split between the state and um, local 
jurisdictions. So it creates a, a dual stream of revenue. The excise tax initially uh, for the first 40 million went to capital construction. And as Kathy will talk about more specifically, the best program that we call it, Building Excellent Schools Today, yet another of our K-12 acronyms. Um, we were able several years ago with huge help from Kathy and other K-12 stakeholders to get the legislature to give us 90 percent of the excise tax to, to send that to the best board. And this past session through House Bill 1055, we were able to get 100% of those revenues. We can talk a little bit more about the amounts of those dollars, although it looks like this year that will be $62.5 million in excise tax being transferred to best and estimated that in 2021, that will go down slightly to about $59.3 million. And Daniil, as our expert from the Department of Ed, can you sort of walk us through um, how the rest of those dollars are allocated? Yeah, so there's a couple of things I think it's important to realize. And as we think about the context and get some perspective around it, um, when we're talking about the excise tax that is going into the BEST program, in 1718, we had $93. million of tax revenue. However, to put that into perspective, the marijuana tax revenue was roughly about 1.6 of the state's total um, K-12 education budget of $5.6 million. So when we're thinking about it, it's really a really small percentage of the marijuana tax revenue that is going into those programs. Um, and we look at how the rest of the money is distributed. We're looking at um, the special sales tax and the regular state sales tax that is um, going into the marijuana tax cash fund, which is supporting a number of other programs, which we will um, be talking about a little bit more in depth today. So in addition to money flowing into BEST, we also have an early literacy competitive grant program in 1819 that received around $5.4 million. The school health professional grant that George is here to talk more about um, received $11.9 million. Uh, school bullying prevention and the education grant program, um, $2 million in 1819. Dropout prevention, which was another $2 million that was set aside. And um, the state public school fund received the additional $30 million there. So um, it's spread across many different programs um, to support some of our highest needs areas. And as Michelle talked about, there are a definite um, we have more needs than we have resources available, and I think Kathy can uh, talk more about that as we talk about um, what has been funded by BEST up to this point. So it's distributed across many different programs, but when we're looking at overall what percentage that is of our in, um, state budget, it's just a very small percentage. Yeah, and, and I think one of the things that we've, we found and we, as we continue to work with, with the districts is that that percentage is really critical for people to understand because I think there's a misunderstanding out in the general public around the fact that with the marijuana dollars that they all go to public education, it is a really small percentage of the total budget. To those of us, are, uh, those are people who are listening in the business world, I think just one of the things we decided to say is look at your total budget and look at 1.6% of your total budget. Does that make or break what's going on in your systems? And what we know is it helps. It makes some really great impacts, and we're going to talk more about what that looks like today. But for an overall impact, we actually see some other drains out of the public education funding that are at a greater percentage. And so though this is helpful and we don't negate the fact that it helps in some areas, and we'll highlight those here in a little bit, but we want to make sure that folks know this wasn't 
the fix for public education that unfortunately I think a lot of people see and we hear across social media of people saying, where did the marijuana money go? We want to make sure that people are, are very clear and understanding that it is a very small percentage of what we spend as a state to try to educate students across the state. Right, and sort of interestingly, the first, we've talked here, I think, about the uh, special allocation for rural school districts that comes out of the legislature as sort of one-time money that we've now gotten three successive times. The first time, the first $30 million of that came out of the marijuana tax cash fund. We were able to secure $20 million this year from a different revenue stream and are now talking about ways to make that no longer one-time money, but a permanent funding stream to support rural schools, and what does that look like in I don't know. My my mind is going, couldn't we use some of this money for that? But I think what we hear every year, and I think we saw some articles to this point, it looks like there's about $272 million that goes into the marijuana cash fund this year, and that it's sort of like that pot that everybody pulls from to fund. Mm -hmm. I think we had uh, 12 grant programs set up in uh, K-12 education alone, and most of that money, I believe, uh, comes out of the marijuana tax fund, cash fund. So... Um, it is sort of, a, and I think that there's some conversations about changing that and maybe, maybe further limiting its use, and we'll see how we can impact those conversations to benefit rural schools and communities going forward. Well, and I think we've talked about in our past episode the issue of capacity. So when we're looking at grant programs and competitive grants, there is the, the additional challenge Great for point. our rural districts, and maybe George can help speak to that a little bit, about um, just the capacity that it's taking from our districts to actually engage in um, applying for these grants and making sure that they're successful, overseeing them, managing those types of grants, and, and what that takes in a rural district. And so hopefully we can touch on that a little bit as well. I think that's the perfect segue over to you, George. Can I, I know we've had some really good conversations about this, the benefits and challenges around the school health professionals grant, some of which I think we addressed this year, thanks to input from you and others. But talk a little bit about Danielle's point. We did an episode on mental health, um, but create uh, George, before he was in Canyon City, was in a much smaller rural district in Center, Colorado, in the San Luis Valley. So talk about your perspectives from either or both around mental health needs, uh, the grant writing capacity, and how, how you've implemented the dollars from the School Health Professional Grant. Yeah, I think the story actually goes all the way back to the beginning of the recession and the imposition of the negative factor, or the BS factor, um, budget stabilization, we'll say. Um, what you will find in a typical rural school um, in Colorado uh, nowadays is a, a system that lacks counselors. Um, when when cuts had to be made in school districts, a uh, great place to do that was um, well, what every district tried to do is avoid the classroom as far as those cuts. And so things like librarians and certified counselors and certified nurses in school systems got eliminated. Uh, and so with um, the, um, the legalization of marijuana in Colorado, I, I think there was sort of a, my guess is a little bit of a guilt trip um, at the legislative level that, okay, we're, 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 we're in this situation where we've uh, legalized a, what used to be a controlled substance. And perhaps because of this, some school districts are going to be dealing with uh, um, some challenges specific to that, which uh, you can hear a lot of stories around the state, what that looks like. Mm -hmm. And so some grant programs were developed um, where you could um, actually access some of the dollars to maybe address some of the drawbacks um, to the legalization. But 
quite frankly, the reality was that um, school districts have been tapping into it to put back in place a lot of the things we had to get rid of during the uh, recession and the imposition of the budget stabilization factor. Um, in center, uh, I was superintendent of schools of about 700 students, and there was me, there was a director of instruction, and uh, as you folks who are in rural Colorado understand, you're kind of doing it all. At one, one year, I even spent, as I, the term I like to coin as a superintensible, where we lost a principal late in the spring, and we felt like the best thing to do the next year was to just ride it on through without finding someone to replace that person yet. In fact, that was during uh, a lot of budget cuts as well. Um, the capacity to apply for these grants uh, is limited. Uh, when you're dealing with uh, concerned parent calls on a daily basis as a superintendent of schools, um, a lot of the things that um, mid-level management will address um, um, in larger school districts, it's hard to apply for these grants and it takes certain kind of people to do that. And so one drawback to the grant programs is it really is dependent on your capacity to apply. Um, I was lucky in center in that we developed a few people who were pretty darn good at applying and uh, acquiring um, such grants. And in Canyon City, uh, taking that experience here, I've uh, also been able to do the same. And, uh, and so we're uh, pretty heavy participants in two aspects of the grant programs you talked about. We actually had an early literacy grant uh, here in Canyon City that has been a game changer for us as far as reading instruction. And uh, we're, I think, in our third year of participation in school health professionals uh, grant program. Um, Michelle, would you like me to tell you a little bit about how we actually apply that? Yes, please. Yeah, so... Um, Upon arrival in Canyon City Schools, I found out that the district had not reviewed its, um, we'll call it growth and development, but some folks, it, it touches on sex education uh, program uh, uh, here in Canyon City since like the 1980s. <laughs> So think about what that might have looked like, and chances are there's a lot of places in rural Colorado where it might look the same. In fact, a role I proudly served in center schools was I was the fifth grade go-to guy when there wasn't a male teacher in fifth grade, uh, you know, when you split up the boys and the girls and you had that first kind of deep talk about well, what's going on with your body? Um, uh, yeah, and that was like 1980s um, growth and development education, quite frankly, at the time. But so, so what we were able to do through the School Health Professionals Grant here in Canyon City is we were able to choose a scientifically um, um, uh, proven uh, curriculum in which the, it allowed some choice, local choice, as to what topics we hit. But the question is, is where the, then do you teach it? Um, and our situation was that we're so we're so trying to focus on the reading, the math, all the content area requirements that the state of Colorado has laid before us and that they accredit us uh, on that we needed to find some extra personnel to deliver the curriculum. And the school health professional um, grant was a great way to do that, helped us purchase the materials and then helped us hire um, what I would call clinical people. A typical person you're hiring through a, a school health professional grant is a certified nurse uh, at some level or a certified counselor at some level. And who better than to um, stand in front of your students than to address some of the um, difficult uh, issues about uh, getting a year older at each uh, level and also touching on some of the more um, 
more difficult topic matter uh, in which um, some kids uh, may be their best chance to get accurate information as opposed to through the internet, friends, and and what have you. And and so uh, we went from virtually no program, uh, the closest to uh, our review being uh, 30 years ago, to what I think is a very cutting-edge program, one so much so that when the legislation was passed this um, spring that was very controversial. We were like, yeah, we, we're already there. We made these decisions back in 2016 when we adopted our growth and development curriculum. And we have people trained to deliver it uh, in a very clinical way that takes out all that emotion. So uh, those are some of the things we're doing with the dollars here in Canyon City. So thanks, George. Interestingly, one of the conversations that George and I had had several years about goes about that grant. Well, there were two pieces. One was we can't always find those clinical licensed professionals in rural Colorado. So one of the things, um, and Mental Health Colorado was a very strong leader in this conversation that we did this session was expand uh, the types of counselors that you could use. It's not no longer limited to certified nurses. We did that a couple of years ago and or um, licensed school counselors. Now it's a much broader base of counselors who can be eligible for that program. And I think more importantly or as importantly for rural communities, you, can, you no longer do the counselors have to be employed by the school district. They can, you can uh, partner with your community health provider or other third party and use telehealth options to be able to meet the needs of those kids and they've really expanded the purposes of the grant beyond um, health and how we may more generally think about that to really specifically address suicide prevention, which, as we talked about a couple of episodes ago, is a really a growing and increasing concern in, for all of our schools and uh, more so in our rural schools, at least according to the data, the urgency around that need. So that's sort of exciting when we're able to identify a need and then address it um, and we hope address it and expand opportunities for rural leaders. The other thing, George, that you ta we had talked about and others have expressed is this frustration around this is a two or three year grant. How do we, can we continue these programs after the grant expires? Can you talk about that a little bit and what that looks like? Yeah, and that, that's uh, the moral of the story is Colorado and its funding is no way to run a railroad. Um, <laughs> very often you're dependent on short-term grant opportunities. And um, anyone who's been around long enough knows that the focus changes from one thing to another. Um, a while back, the focus on health and wellness in Colorado was really about nutrition and movement. Now it's getting to be mental health and the school um, uh, um, health professionals grant can really support that. It may be more so on the social emotional counseling as opposed to comprehensive. Uh, and so the problem is the target keeps um, uh, moving and what you were doing three years ago, which may have been a pretty successful program, may no longer be allowed um, through a grant. Um, and I would just tell it as a matter of fact that if the school health professional grant were to go away, our program as we currently teach it would go away. And as we currently teach it is um, students get on average um, uh, two hours a, a week of, of um, instruction and growth and development um, um, by a health professional, certified counselor, certified nurse, or someone who very close meets those requirements, as Michelle talked about with the expansion. And, and, it, and it, in essence, has been become an elective or a life skills part of our um, daily schedule 
that that would have to go away. There's no way we could sustain um, a level of one employee per building for eight buildings to to deliver that curriculum. We'd have to take a gigantic step back and cut time out of other people's day to deliver the content. So um, I kind of like to chime in when there's an opportunity for partnership among <laughs> our business roundtable listeners. And I think certainly those of you, the telehealth and the expanded opportunities around telehealth for our rural schools and partnering with third-party providers is a new space for us to some extent. So if there are listeners out there who are providing those services, please do get in touch with one of us and we'll talk more about how to get you and those supports connected with some of our rural leaders. I, I do... I don't want to underestimate um, or understate the critical impact that these counselors and other professionals have in our schools and then what happens I think everyone to a dime at our last meeting up in Breckenridge on Monday with the Rural Council talking taking on the mental health issue talks about the game-changing impact that counselors have uh, especially in the elementary school and that when these grants go away and the programs are cut it also is uh, has a critical impact but you know not for the better obviously yeah and I, and I think one of the things that you know George illustrated how his district is using it and it's in a fantastic way uh, one of the things that I want to remind listeners is is that there's 178 school districts in the state of Colorado and so the amount of dollars that are actually coming in through this flow are very limited and so they all are competitive grants mm -hmm. so that every district is kind of pinned in this cycle against each other to try to then receive these grants. And going back to what Daniil presented, I think it's important that people understand that the dollars that come out, some are set aside for the best program in capital construction. The other grants that then come from the excise tax include the early literacy competitive grant, and that one's only 5.4 million. So again, 178 gets divided up and so there's very few of those grants that actually get school um, health professionals grant is only 11 million the school bullying prevention and education grants is only 2 million dropout prevention is also 2 million and so though we when we look at it i think it's always really important for folks to understand that this is a very limited dollar amount and unfortunately when, when we look at how these programs are able to be continued on once a district gets these dollars one of their their one of the things that they have to figure out is how is it sustainable and i think as george very eloquently talked about that's one of the struggles that every district has that gets one of these grants is what does sustainability look like they're great startup dollars they get us going um but i think we all struggle when receiving a grant is what do we do when those dollars end and how can we embed them in our system and culture and find the resources to continue on so absolutely private foundations other partners are one of the ways that districts have to look to be able to to continue the success that they're seeing it's unfortunate that we're not able to sustain that through state funding but that's part of of this process that we have Gee, yeah there's another interesting part of the story and and um anyone who's applied for a grant uh, program in Colorado, uh, there's probably a 75% chance that when you do apply for a grant, um, you're asked to say what it's going to take to accomplish um, your goals um, as established through that grant. 
and I'm just going to make up numbers. And so you apply for $500,000 because you're going to need this, 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 and this to pull it off. And then your reward is Mm -hmm. Mm $350,000. Yeah. Expected to accomplish everything you were asked to accomplish, except they're giving you less money. And and, uh, it, it, it comes down to because it's such a limited supply of resources and um, we're grateful to get our hands on anything we can and we um, contort ourselves to even get that and uh, sometimes you're you're left with some local commitments that you you sort of can't um, abide by uh, because of your limited budget uh, in doing that and, and and so it's just part of that no way to run a railroad story yeah, and to add to that, and to Kirk's point as well, so when talking about BES, there was a statewide facility assessment done in 2009 when more than 8,000 facilities were inventoried, um, and that revealed that there were $13.9 billion in capital construction needs. So just, again, to put that in perspective, the overwhelming um, amount of needs that we have versus the actual resources that we can allocate towards those, I think is important for everyone to understand. And that, that kind of... Um Supply versus demand or demand versus supply exists in virtually every arena and for every grant that is funded by this program. Uh, And to that end, we were able to secure an additional $5 million for the School Health Professionals Grant. And there's a lot of conversation and will be next session legislation around the bullying prevention and the great success that that grant program has had once it was finally funded several years ago. And so uh, wait to see how much new dollars or what that looks like going in. And always including language that says make the grant process easy and the reporting minimal to meet rural school districts needs so we'll see how that goes Back to Connect and Collaborate, voice of the Colorado Business Roundtable on KDMT, Denver's Money Talk, 1690 AM. We have Michelle Murphy with Colorado Rural Alliance, Kirk Banghart of the Colorado Rural Education Collaborative, and Danielle LaPlatte, who is with the Rural Services for the Colorado Department of Education. You can find every episode here and more at cobrt.com slash radio dash podcast. Just scroll down the page, look for Redefining Rural. And if at any point you need to get in touch with any of those members, we have email addresses posted there for you as well. All right. I think this is a perfect space and place to shift over to... um, the excise tax more specifically, and during break, Kathy told me that I got something wrong, which is why I like to hang out with Kathy, because she is the expert. So she's going to get a little more clarity about the excise tax, and then talk about the best program, um, how it started, why it started, how it operates, and then we'll dig into some details about impact. So the only small correction I would have made, Michelle, is that it was a it's a tax on recreational marijuana, and that Colorado, along with the state of Washington, were kind of leading the country in allowing the sale of recreational marijuana. And if some of you may recall, we had to go, I think, to the ballot three times to mm. allow us to get it right on the excise tax for marijuana, thanks to our friends um, in the Constitution known as Tabor. Um, So anyway, I will talk a little bit about the BEST program, which started in 2008. 
Uh, and at the time, it was funded almost exclusively from money from the state trust lands and also from some surplus from the state lottery. Can you talk about the state trust lands just a little bit? I'm not sure our listeners really know what that's all about. Those are the lands that were set aside at the time of statehood to um, support the funding of public education. And um, during the kind of the, a lot of the revenue comes from oil and gas Perfect. and also from grazing and from other kinds of recreational uses. And so they are a big source of um, money for public schools, but they're supposed to be used for intergenerational uses, not just for operational uses, which is why many thought that the use of the um, some of the state trust land proceeds for building schools was intergenerational and was an appropriate use of those funds. And Great. that accounts for at least 70% of the best funding, is that right? That's correct. So I'm looking at a chart that looks at the funding from fiscal year 14 to 18, and we received about $372 million from the state trust lands mm -hmm. and only an $186 million from the excise tax. So it gives you a sense of the proportion. And then the rest of that money goes into what we call the permanent fund, which is held for the intergenerational uses that you talked about. Is that right? Correct. Okay. So um, I think a couple important things um, the public needs to know about facility funding. First is that unlike the operational side of school funding for Colorado, it is not equalized. And so it is the only source of funding for schools that is totally dependent on a local school district's um, own property wealth. Hmm. And so what you will see is um, facilities in districts such as my own, such as Boulder, you will see fabulous new buildings because we have high property wealth in Boulder and a, ta a tax base that's able to support increasing taxes to pay for schools. And then you'll see places in rural Colorado where they don't have the tax base. And so even if they were able to raise the appropriate amount of money, they wouldn't be able to even build a school or renovate a school. So I think it's really important to remember that the state does not provide any funds other than through BEST mm -hmm. to support facilities. And I think that sometimes that just gets lost in the conversation because we equalize the funding on the operational side. Um, so starting in 2008, as Daniil said, there was a survey um, that looked at the quality of the schools across the state. Up until 2008, the state had no idea how many facilities it had, what the quality of the facilities hmm. were. And it always had kind of a hands-off approach to not our problem. It's always been considered a local district's issue to keep their buildings up and to build new buildings. And in 2008, we did a, 2008, 2009, we did a survey of all of the school buildings and came up with a need of about 13 to $18 billion, which I know is a number that a lot of people think that's so big, we'll never get there, so why try? Um, but the, the bill passed in the legislature, the Building Excellent Schools today, passed um, 99 to 1 is I think what the, the vote was when it passed in 2008 and started finally looking at how are we going to as a state put together a grant program to try to address some of our facility needs. Um, the program does two things. It gives lease purchase. So think of it as a mortgage. Um, mm -hmm. In Colorado, we aren't able to do long-term debt, so we do lease purchases or certificates of participation, and then we do cash grants for the smaller projects. So the way that it was originally structured, the first $40 million went to COPs or certificates of participation. Once that money was gone, then there was no more money available for lease purchase, so we were back to just using cash grants. And then along comes the excise tax, and it took a couple of years so that we could kind of see that the excise tax revenues were growing mm -hmm. and were stable, so so that they were enough for us to be able to build COPs off of. And so for the last couple of years, we've been using between two and $5 million of the excise tax to support the certificates of participation. 
So just to give you some um, perspective again, this last year we had um, almost $850 million in grant requests. Mm. We were able to fund, because we had the COPs um, in the last statute that um, Michelle referenced, we were able to fund $433 million. And of that, I'll just break it out really quickly. For COPs, we had $170 million in the state match, which is coming from the money I just talked about, and $105 million from the district match. And then in cash grants, we had $85 million in state and $75 million in, ca in local. One other thing I'll say that I think is really key to the BEST program is that there is a local match. So this is not just a state-funded program, and the local match is um, a very complicated calculation based on um, free and reduced lunch count and how many times you've um, failed a bond election. It's probably the only place where failing a bond election actually is beneficial to your calculation. I'm <laughs> George is laughing, sorry. Um, and, and then there's also, um, as I was saying, for example, in George's district and in Kirk's district, the, the property values are so low that even if you were able to go up to your statutory maximum mm -hmm. um, and pass a bond, you wouldn't be able to do anything. So that's called a statutory waiver. So we have a waiver process where if you do that, the state will pick up the rest to help you be able to um, complete your construction. So Kirk, can I, I talk a little a, about that? Yeah, I think that's a really important thing for folks to understand is that when we look at, at this lack of equalization in our, our finance, one of the things that we saw is that in a lot of rural districts, our property values are so limited that I know from my colleagues here in the metro area and some of the other cities, there's actually single buildings or single blocks that actually are valued higher than my entire district, mm -hmm. even though I'm talking to the multiple of, of 10 to 20 times the square area, because the district that I had, which was the northern San Luis Valley, also had a lot of federal land uh, mm -hmm. with the national park, the forest land, and none of those are in your calculation of taxable for the state revenues. And so what we saw is that I was unable to even bond at enough level to make repairs, much less replace whole buildings. And so that was over a multi-generational time that we really struggled with that. And so this this program was such a huge advantage where when I look at my colleagues here in the metro area, you know, what would be a one mil would generate a huge amount of money. One mil in the rural areas barely fixes a boiler. And so we'd see this disproportional on what was taxable for people's homes and businesses and what it would generate for the district. And I know George uh, in center Colorado had the same thing. We also see land for agriculture is, is taxed at a lot, a different level than residential. And so when you have a lot in rural areas, when it's based off of what product you're actually producing, that number really drops the amount of money you can leverage as well. And so for a school district, capital construction, which is a huge cost, it is not calculated into what we get per student. And so the leveraging that looks very different in rural. Well, and I, I mean, you can't understate the amazing impact that the BEST program has had. It's not only available to rural schools and charter schools, we need to say, and I know Kirk will talk about the impact on his charter schools that all, both are eligible. Um, but I was just out in the Mancus district with some folks from the state, and they're in the midst of uh, a BEST project. And it is, I mean, there's nothing more exciting than seeing these incredible facilities and fields. I mean, it uh, gyms, what they do, and how that sort of uplifts the communities. In our rural schools, the school building is up in the center of the community, and we've talked about that. And so they now have a new theater to go for their productions, and it just really... 
um, makes a huge impact. And I need to say that Kathy is being ridiculously humble in her conversations because I think I can say that the best program likely wouldn't exist if it wasn't for Kathy Gephardt's advocacy. And we, we have maxed out our COP authority in the best program several times. And it, that authority has been expanded by the legislature twice. And we may need to do that again, I'm told. Um, and again, thanks to Kathy, Kathy's strong advocacy. So I needed to recognize that. George, I know you were trying to say something. Yeah, um, a story that has to be told. I'm going to even put name to it. Folks uh, from rural Colorado might remember a guy by the name of Buck Stroh, um, uh. superintendent of Creed. And as uh, schools were getting built around the San Luis Valley through the BEST program, I remember Buck at one point talking to him. And, and if you understand the school they had, I believe it was designed on a napkin by old miners and Creed after each day's worth of work. And, and I just got to suspect if it ever caught fire, it would take about four minutes to be completely gone. It was that bad. And I asked, I asked Buck at one point, Buck, why aren't you guys applying for, uh, you know, assistance through best. And Buck said to me, well, George, I can't meet our required match. And, and that's the point what, that Kathy said about the statutory waiver. Uh, once Buck discovered that, hey, if you go to your max and that's still, you know, $6 million short of what it's going to take to build a new school for your, a safe new school for your kids in Creed, you can submit a waiver and you can get that. And so if, if you're a rural superintendent or director of finance who has been saying, oh, we can't do best because we can't afford our match. Please don't forget that uh, um, that statutory waiver is there for the purpose of making sure you can get the job done that needs to be done in order to serve your kids. And, and if I could just add one more thing to the, the waiver, um, Denver Public Schools applied this last year um, because they had two emergency projects that came up that they really needed to have funded, and those were funded. They had a very high match, but the fact that they could get a few million dollars for a cash grant out of the BEST program um, I think was really helpful. So school districts across the state are eligible to apply. You just have a higher match, but sometimes that little bit of that match that you can get is what it takes to actually get a project finished when you find something that's gone horribly wrong at the last minute. And Kath, is it fair to say that the COPs are the funding mechanism typically when for a new school facility and the cash grants are for smaller? I know a lot of districts use the cash grants for safety upgrades um, and roof upgrades and those sort of things. Is that well, Can is we that talk accurate? about that for a second? I think it's pretty interesting to actually look at um, what projects BEST has funded and by project type. I think there are things people don't necessarily even think about when it comes to facility upgrades. So um, when you're looking at all of the projects that were funded by BEST, we have 30% of those that have gone to um, put a new roof on all of our mm -hmm. uh, the school buildings. And after that, 16% um, have gone towards new school and school replacements. And after that, about 10%, 10.5% to security and almost 10% to just um, renovations. And after that, there are several other different projects that um, HVAC systems, fire alarms, um, asbestos, uh, water systems, boilers, um, ADA compliance, those types of things. So it, there, yeah. it's funding um, a multitude of different projects that are really affecting safety, security, and overall student health and well-being. So one thing I would also add is that the legislature seems to think we have a never-ending supply of money. And so what they have done is they've added to our list of what we call priority one projects. And 
and priority one is supposed to just be health and safety, but we now have technology included as a priority one, and this last year, career and technical education programs have also been added. And several years ago, um, we also looked at testing for lead in pipes in schools. Oh, right. Um, and BEST was identified as the source of funding for remediation of lead in um, pipes in schools. So um, we also have an ability, we were originally designed to be able to address kindergarten facility right, needs. Right, good point. And um, it was never funded. The bill was passed by Jack Palmer back in 2008. And then, as some of you may recall, we hit the Great Recession. And so there was no money that was put into that. But we built up a reserve. And so this last year, we were able to put $25 million into a full-day kindergarten, what's called FF&E, fixtures, finances, and other durables, um, to help um, blunt some of the impact of implementing the governor's highest priority, which was full-day kindergarten. Yeah, that's really exciting, and I know those numbers just went out to districts a week or two ago, and people are really excited about the opportunities created. And then, by one, Michelle, you mentioned charter schools, and what I would say is that charter schools face similar challenges. They don't have access oftentimes to facility funding, especially CSI schools. There's no um, ability for them to actually be able to bond, and so this program, I think, has been very helpful, and they actually get $300 per student out of a combination of money from the state education fund and from the excise tax that goes out directly to charter schools to assist with their ability to actually provide facilities for their students. Right, in an effort to make up for that shortfall Correct. or their lack of access. Correct. And I think one of the things that we saw, I think both George and I can, can speak of what we've seen to, in both of our systems, we were able to have the opportunity to do full school replacements. And so one of the things that I always like to highlight in talking about this program is, is when we look at those um, full replacements is what it also does to a small community and has helped. I know um, one of the things that we saw in, in my district was that we were actually saw a bump in student achievement, a definitely a, a huge sense of pride and ownership by our students when they were able to go. Um, I always tell people that you could when I was first looking at it, one of the things I do is I could crawl into our crawl space and due to the acidity of the soil in the San Luis Valley, I have a great video of me putting my hand on a 24 inch foundational wall and just going like this and having it absolutely crumble underneath the force. And I'm not a buffy guy, so <laughs> it was, didn't take a whole lot to destroy that foundation. And so I think one of the things that we saw was that sense of pride and safety for kids that this program creates, especially for small communities as Michelle pointed out, that in our rural communities, the schools are the center of our communities. They are the places where folks gather. And to have a state safe and new, new facility for them to be having pride and community pride in is something that we see is not just a, a facilities bonus, but it really helps build the community and students and the pride of the school that they're at. So we've seen huge success, um, not only got the opportunity to do that for a traditional school, but also did that for our charter school and our community, which again was a wonderful sense of pride and changing the, the happenstance for that, that school. Originally, we ha it was based out of single wide trailers and we were able to get them into a full-time facility mm -hmm. and it was a wonderful experience to go through that process with both the students and the teachers and the community and families who are involved in that program to see the evolution of their choice with regards to educational um, delivery and get it from a point where it was, was very fragmented all the way up to the point in which it was a, a full facility. And so it was great benefit to those communities. George, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about your experience and what you saw in the benefits of, of the BEST program 
as far as facilities. Kirk, I can remember your video, and I can remember watching it as you were peeling away the foundation of that old facility in Moffat, and I remember being disturbed. Uh, I, I mean, it's like, stop, stop, Kirk, the whole thing. <laughs> so, um, but, but that's how bad some schools are in, in Colorado. That's that's a fact of the matter, and that a, a place like uh, Moffat, Colorado, could build a brand-new school to, to kind of keep that public institution viable for the next 50, 70 years um, is, is fantastic. And, it, and it's just that, that old adage that should it come down to your zip code as to whether you can – um, walk into a safe and functional school building or not that, that's important Here, here's an aspect of the best program there's two aspects that i would like to talk about that i think are really effective uh, i for you who are superintendents of rural schools in colorado out there i missed the class about building a new building i'm sorry <laughs> I, um, um, that one that yeah. exists um, especially for small rural situations because I think the average superintendency um, development program assumes you're going to have people within your system who know about this stuff mm. and so one of the things that the, the, the CDE capital construction department has established and it's changed um, because I was at the front end and I'm at the most current end of building <laughs> buildings right now through the best program but the support you get from CDE to to not make major mistakes to erect something that ultimately the community wouldn't be proud of is fantastic. Um, there are uh, it, it's uh, some difficult hoops to jump through at times, um, but what they're doing is they're they're holding to the E in best excellent schools, um, and and to me I would just say if you did an analysis all over the state of Colorado, of all districts who've ever just built built facilities on their own dime, that it was probably more likely that because of not having the expertise that's offered through um, CDE's best program, that, that buildings were built that had some deficiencies um, show up pretty quick because I's were not dotted and T's were not crossed. And it does cost a little bit more money to do that, but it's money well spent because if you get 70 years use out of that facility you build, that's that's really worth doing. And, and there's another aspect to this. There's no way um, some of the nicest historic facilities in Colorado could be maintained and saved for the future without being mothballed and eventually crumbling around themselves, if not for the best program. There were some... Uh, I was involved in one aspect of that. There were some fits and starts about what power local communities had to make decisions. Um, but not having resources to save an old facility meant that your only option was to tear it down. And there's a lot of nice facilities standing in Colorado that will last extra generations um, because of the best program, because uh, folks have been able to go into the school and make it uh, 21st century ready while sustaining that 19th century look that it may have had. George, I'd just like to add to that because I've had a couple conversations with some rural superintendents and it's really exciting to see the repurposing of some of the old mm -hmm, buildings. Mm -hmm. So not only does it help with the new school, but it's also helping with community revitalization mm -hmm. as you see different businesses and different governmental entities moving into these buildings and repurposing them as opposed to tearing them down. Kind of to your point that um, partnering with your local um, government agencies and other entities um, and being able to repurpose these buildings has provided a whole new boost to the community, which is really exciting.
And always interesting to me, again, being sort of a city girl with that rural heart, is the important role that some of these facilities, in particular the gymnasiums, play mm-hmm. in these rural communities Absolutely. and how the community, because it's a big planning project. It's not like the superintendent on the board design a building and off they go. They bring their community in and there's a master plan. And anytime I think you guys can speak to this better than me, you talk about knocking down a gymnasium, it's like absolutely not. <laughs> so the best staff and the best program being nimble about how to be able to honor what the local community wants and their design and what's important to them uh, has gone a long way, I think, towards creating facilities that everybody's super excited about. You know, I, I think that's a really key point is that I think all of our communities that have participated in this process, uh, the stakeholder group that comes together is real key. I'll, I'll speak to my story. Um, one of the ones, the communities that I was superintendent for was a community called Crestone. And so one of the ethos in Crestone is, is really looking at how do we ensure that we're as close to net zero as possible for a building. So we were able to use that community expertise input along with those folks who had the, uh, those we contracted with to ensure and then our, the charter school that we built in Crestone is actually probably one of the closest to net zero buildings uh, in the state of Colorado. It uses a solar thermic process to be able to heat, which in the San Luis Valley is pretty amazing because it gets very cold, but we have a lot of days of sunshine. So it's a really unique mm. and, and system and it really fit what that community needed and wanted they didn't want to be based off of traditional heating systems so the flexibility within the best program allowed the community's insight and expertise to ensure that they had a building that they valued and wanted and would support and so that's just one example of how community stakeholders are really involved in that process i was going to add that in terms of the a school in rural Colorado is just is not just for the kids, it's for the community. Mm-hmm. And in center Colorado, the school also serves as the public library. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that was lost um, um, to, to the community a few years before the building was built. It was adopted by the school and it was able to be, we were able to design the school to incorporate that public library space and that was fantastic. Uh, we're adding a school-based health center to one of the schools we're building here in Canyon City and uh, what that will do for uh, hmm. employee retention to attract and retain folks um, and also to support the um, social emotional wellness uh, of our students will be fantastic um, in in center colorado if you're going to have a baby shower it's more likely to take place in the <laughs> school's commons than anywhere else it's it's just it's just a window to the community um, and 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 that's what rural communities need is a good solid facility that can uh, serve uh, the taxpayers every way possible So as we wrap up, I have some really um, interesting stats I think we should share. So overall, BEST has awarded 354 grants in 141 of our 178 districts, um, touching uh, 225,000 students, improving their learning environment in 524 schools. So overall impact is huge. And as we're wrapping up, I would just call on our audience to um, help us think forward. I'm calling it BEST.2 or 2.0, sorry, because we are at the end of our ability to be able to issue COPs, and I think we've reached our maximum of sale of marijuana. Um, And so we need to start thinking creatively about how we're going to meet that need going forward because I think we've established that this partnership between local and state works really well, Um, but we just need to figure out how we can carry that forward so that we can go forward and meet some of that additional $12 billion in need that's out there for all schools. 